Uh, but today, I'm just so pleased that you're dialed in today for this part one of this series called The Questionable Life. And I want to begin with a story that's not my story. I want to begin with a story that I heard from this guy right here. His name is uh, Tim Keller, was pastor of uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And I just, I'm just such a fanboy for Tim Keller because not only is he brilliant, but he's humble. And some people are brilliant and they're full of themselves. And it just, he speaks with such grace and his just tone is just so loving and gracious. So brilliant, but also just incredibly humble. And he told a story about something that happened in his church in New York City specifically in Manhattan. Uh, he, you know, he's a pastor, he sees a woman that's there, and every week she like races out the door before anyone can meet her right after the service ends week after week. And so one day he caught her and just said, hi. And she said, hi, uh, I'm new here and I don't necessarily believe everything you guys believe, but I'm intrigued. And he said, well, what brought you to Redeemer Church? And she told him. She was working for a major TV network in New York City, and she had made a mistake. Not just a little mistake, she had made a career, a potentially career-ending mistake. Certainly a job-ending mistake. And she was just sure that she was going to get canned for this mistake and maybe end her career. What happened is her, her boss went in front of the executives, and the boss had a lot of credibility a lot of capital with the executive team, and he told the executive team, don't blame her, blame me. I didn't train her well enough. I didn't prep her well enough for what she was doing. Don't fire her. If you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at me and not her. And he lost some of his credibility and spent some of his capital in saying, don't blame her, blame me. Well, she went to her boss later on, and she had a conversation with him, and she said, why did you do that? And he's like, oh, you know, just don't worry about it, just forget about it. And she says, no, I want to know why you did that. Because what happens in companies is that bosses often take the credit for the good things you do. But if they make a mistake, they blame people farther down the ladder. And so she says, what is most common is you blame people below, but you don't take the credit for mistakes that are made below. And again, he's just kind of like, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, forget about it. Don't worry about it. And she says, no, I want to know why you did that. And he responded, well, okay, you asked for it. You asked for it. I'm a Christian. And my life is based on a man who took the blame for me. And that shapes pretty much everything I do. And she said, what church do you go to? <laughs> and that's how she ended up exploring Redeemer Church and bumping into Tim Keller. What church do you go to? Now, keep the dynamics of that story in mind. Keep the dynamics of Tim's story in mind as we look at a verse from scripture together written by the fisherman disciple. His name was Peter. When he was younger, he was a fisherman, became one of Jesus' followers. He is older now and he's giving guidance to a Jesus community generations, excuse me, uh, decades after the time when he walked around with Jesus. So I just want you to notice this. Is, you'd find this in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, the words of the fisherman disciple. Peter would write, but in your hearts, revere Christ, Jesus, as Lord. Make Jesus Lord, boss in your life. And he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason 
for the hope that you have. But when you give a person an explanation for your faith, uh, do this with gentleness and respect. Now, keep that verse in mind and the story about the woman that worked at the uh, television network. Uh, the boss who took the blame for her, that's that first part that has to do with your life. But in your hearts, review Christ as, revere Christ as Lord. My life is based on someone who took the blame for me, and that is shaping every area of my life. That's the first part. Second part is he was able to give a response, a brief response, and he was able to do it with uh, what's called gentleness and respect, with a gracious, humble attitude. That story, I think, is really encapsulates what we're directed to here, and it's five weeks. That verse is going to be the verse for five weeks, the questionable life. Not simply how to have a spiritual conversation, not simply how do you have a Jesus conversation, but the question is how do you live in such a way that someone kind of outside the faith looking in would actually want to ask about what's going on? What I'm trying to say here is this. If Jesus begins to be real to you and begins to shape the way you think and the way you relate and behavior, my friends, it's only a matter of time before someone in your life, somewhere, some way, is going to say, what's up with you? You're not like you used to be. Or explain this. Why... I just wish it could be like this everywhere. Why is that happening here? And you're able to give a brief response with a great attitude, with gentleness and respect. So the question, the question before the house is this. What kind of behavior was Peter, the fisherman disciple, thinking about that would be so dynamic and so different and so attractive that people in their world would actually begin to ask questions about their faith, about their hope, about the hope they were living in. What traits would people see? So that's 1 Peter 3.15. We're going to move up just a tiny bit. 1 Peter 3.8, and you see this verse. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Let's read this together. Ready? Ready? Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. That's going to get people to ask questions about your faith. You, know, you, you think it would be, okay, listen, uh, honesty, integrity, and sobriety. That's what would ask people, you know, cause people to ask about your faith. Always tell the truth. Uh, integrity, doing what you said you would do. Know when to leave a party. Honesty, integrity, sobriety. But what Peter points to here is not simply what's taking place in you, what Peter points to here is what's taking place between you. All of these words are relational. In this instance, listen, honesty, integrity, sobriety, hugely important. But in this instance, what Peter taps is not simply what's happening in the life of a believer, but what is happening between believers that was supposed to be absolutely magnetic. Let's take a look at this list. Oneness. He said, be like-minded. Oneness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility. This is the reason there is an attraction mechanism with this. My friends, 
We live in a world that is broken, polarized, and fractured. And so was theirs. We don't need to look far into our extended families to see vast degrees of brokenness. Friend groups splinter and break up because someone said something, someone did something, someone didn't say something they were supposed to say, they didn't do something they were supposed to do. We're dealing with a political situation right now where we ask, how in the world do we get anything done in politics? No, 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 not only division between parties, division within parties. And Peter points to something, their world and ours, it would be absolutely magnetic, oneness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility. Now, I need you to do something. You don't have to do it now, but please try to do it by the time we get to the very end of our teaching today, the end of our conversation. I need you to pick one to work on. Because very rarely do we grow in five areas simultaneously. And so what I would love for you to do during the course of our conversation is pick one of those as a pursuit. And even better, if you pick one of those pursuits and also pick an environment. And what I mean is this. Some of you go, oh, dude, I know exactly which one it is. If I entered this conflict at work with more humility, and so there you go, humility and it's a situation at work. Some of you are looking at this and you already know that it's oneness in your marriage. It might be sympathy toward people in your small group or compassion in a setting of a ministry team that you, uh, that you work in. And so uh, you, you get the instructions here. Try to identify one of those. I'm going to spend a couple minutes explaining each one and what they mean and how they work. But try to pick one for you and also try to pick the environment. And I think it would be uh, loads, loads of help versus trying to understand five and not apply any of them. And so what the, uh, Apostle Peter believed in here was that what would cause people to ask questions about faith was if Jesus' followers became an island of wholeness in a world of brokenness. I think that's what we're called to be, an island of wholeness in a world that's broken, fractured, and divided. So uh, five pursuits. Pursuit number one is oneness. Oneness. The word Peter used there was like-minded. He challenged you, be, all of you be like-minded, uh, oneness. This is having one heart, this is having one mind. Uh, this would be oneness, this oneness thing. It would be so much easier if only the people around you were normal, <laughs> like you. But many people around you aren't normal, like you. Uh, a basic personality profile test, you know, like one of those Myers-Briggs tests, they divide people into categories. Uh, one of them is uh, thinkers and feelers in the way they approach life. Did you know that sometimes thinkers and feelers get married to each other? And one is inevitably looking at the other one going like, don't you have a heart? The other one's going like, don't you have a head? And one of them saying, why don't you ever tell me how you feel? The other one goes, I, I, feel, I feel like you need to think more. <laughs> Thinkers and feelers. In addition, that is another category that has to do with the decision-making grid. Many of us make decisions largely upon intuition. We just get a sense about something. And there are other types. You can't make a decision without a spreadsheet. Data people. And often, I've got a sense about this, and data people end up working in the same department, same family, same ministry team. I, by the way, 
I, by the way, happen to be a high intuiter. I look at a situation and go, you know, I have a sense about this. And I'm surrounded by all these CPA types, you know, so I get a sense. I get, you know, I have a sense that this campus on East Paris could be a wonderful step for us. And I've got these wonderful people around me going, we're so glad that you have a sense about this. We just need one small thing, uh, three-year cash flow analysis. Uh, if we take this step, please tell me, Pastor Mannion, what is our projected giving and additional projected cost? A three, preferably a five-year cash flow analysis. Analysis. You know which one of these is needed? Both of them. High sensors and high spreadsheet people. It would be so much easier if everybody was just normal like you. In addition to thinkers, feelers, data people, and sensors, there are people that come to peace of mind once everything is settled and decided. And there are other people that feel trapped and confined once everything is settled and decided. Often they end up in the same family. Why can't you make a decision? Why do we have to make a decision? Trying to work together. Listen, the oneness that it is talking about here is not a oneness because you came from the same personality temperament. And there's reason to believe that many of these things, thinker, feeler, data, you know, uh, intuiter, uh, uh, that they're hardwired in us. That isn't what brings about oneness. And unity of background, you may come from wildly different backgrounds, wildly different life perspective, that isn't what brings unity. What brings unity, what brings oneness, is that you, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you've come to know him, you all have the same basic story, and the story was this, I was radically lost and I've been radically rescued. It isn't oneness of temperament and personality, it's that you have one Lord, one heart, one spirit, and one hope. That's the oneness factor. Jesus prayed for this, by the way, and he prayed for us. He's on his way here. He's on his way to an olive orchard where he is going to be arrested. It's the last hours of his life. He leaves the Last Supper, he's heading toward the olive orchard, and Jesus begins to pray. This prayer is itemized for you in the late chapters of John's gospel, uh, John chapter 17. And so Jesus prayed for himself, Jesus prayed for his immediate disciples, and then Jesus prayed for the people who would believe in him because of the disciples' message. My friends, that's us. Jesus prayed for us. Well, what did he ask for? Part of his prayer is this. Lord, Father in heaven, I pray that they might be one, that the world will believe that you sent me. Do you realize what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is indicating that a major reason to believe that he's for real is believers getting along. And a major re reason to look at the Christian faith and go, whatever, is believers locked in animated division. It, it, Peter was with him at the Last Supper, with him on the walk to the olive orchard, with him in the olive orchard where he gets arrested. And so Peter says, all of you, 
like-minded. He's pointing to the very thing that Jesus pointed to as a major indicator of whether or not people had a right to believe that he was for real. May they brought to complete unity so that the world will know that, God, that you sent me oneness. Word number two in pursuit number two is sympathy. Sympathy. Number two, sympathy. Sympathy means, sympathy means to feel what somebody else is feeling. Sympathy means to stand with somebody in their joy or also to stand with them in their pain and misery. To sympathize is to stand with somebody in their joy or their pain. Now, Peter in 1 Peter 3 that we're in, he doesn't elaborate on this, but uh, the Apostle Paul I believe it was sympathy that Paul was talking about when in Romans chapter 12, he gave this instruction to the Jesus community in the city of Rome, the capital of the world. He said, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who, re who weep. That's an easy one to get your mind around. Ready? Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's the capacity to feel what another person is feeling. And that first part, why would they need to be told to do that? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Isn't that kind of automatic? Not if they got something that you wanted. <laughs> oh, wonderful. You're going on another vacation. And it looks like your flights will be on time. I don't resent you at all. And you feel kind of stuck, kind of grounded. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Oh, wonderful. Another promotion. And you're still waiting for yours. Showing up at a wedding shower wondering if there's maybe someone out there for you someday. Or attending a sister-in-law's baby shower. And you wait year after year to see if your child will be in your future. Rejoice with those who rejoice is unnatural. When it is something you desire that you're not getting at that time. You want to tell you what's natural? The most natural thing in the world? Latent resentment and envy. Those are the most natural things. Those are the most natural responses. Not rejoice with those who rejoice. It's deep, abiding resentment and envy. Envy, remember what envy is. Envy is that wounded voice that whispers, why them and not me? Why them and not us? This is the most natural direction for your heart to go. Rejoice with those who rejoice. What was the second part? Weep with, what was that part? Rejoice with those who rejoice. And what was the other part? It was weep with those who weep. This is standing with somebody in their pain. This is standing with somebody after a recent breakup. And it has messed with them. This is with standing with somebody who is experiencing failing health, a failing business plan, or a failing marriage. And you actually... Attempt to feel what they're feeling and say, listen, I want to be with you in this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. It's sympathy. It's the capacity to be able to feel what somebody else is feeling. <laughs> you know when this is particularly helpful in healing? This is particularly helpful in healing when you're interacting with somebody that you don't get at all. You know what I'm talking about here? I'm talking about people who are odd. And by odd, I mean not like you. And when you're around someone who's odd, I'm telling you, our gracious God will bring some people into your circle who you go, 
if it weren't for this joint activity, there is no way we would ever hang out. Someone put us in a small group together and we're here on Tuesday mornings. Other than that, I would never hang out with this person. I don't get them. Uh, a ministry team, a work team at work, an in-law that married into the situation. And you go, if we weren't in family together, there's no way to hang out with this, with this person. Now, those situations when you don't get someone and you pretty much don't care, this sympathy thing is massive. Because sympathy is a bonding agent. When you find yourself driving an hour to go to a funeral home visitation because they've lost somebody and you attempt to share in their grief, suddenly you find yourself caring about someone that you don't particularly care for. When you find yourself, when they have a major achievement or a breakthrough and you find yourself getting excited with them for that, this is a bonding agent. It helps you care for someone that you don't particularly care for. When someone is walking through a disappointing, depressive mess and you simply sit and listen and you try to dial into their experience with family, at work, or health and really attempt to feel what they're feeling, you begin to care about them. I'm telling you, I think it's sympathy, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, that helps with number one, oneness. I'm not sure we can have oneness without having sympathy. This is a sympathy, it's a bonding agent, particularly when you're thrown into a group with someone and you just don't, you might end up really loving people you don't get. Sympathy, but this brings us to pursuit number three. Pursuit number three is brotherly love. And that's, that's the word there. The Greek word's Philadelphia, like Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Uh, Philadelphia means brotherly love. And in Greek culture, they were all about giving special attention to uh, biological relatives, a biological brother, biological sister, biological parents and children. They were all about brotherly love, but it was biological brotherly love, someone you're connected to in your family bloodline, a biological relative. By the way, this might be a good time to tell you something about Chris and I that you maybe did not know. We're babysitters. Some of you, this is really good news because you're thinking, oh, that's so wonderful. We'll call you next time we go out. Yeah, don't even think about it. <laughs> but I tell you who does think about it, and that's our kids. So like last Thursday night, we found ourselves at my son's house watching his three little munchkins. You know why he calls us? He calls us because we're free. <laughs> we don't charge anything. Yeah, there is that, but also we tend, we tend to do stuff for family. It's brotherly love. One day a week, Chris has two three-year-old granddaughters. My daughter's three-year-old and my son's uh, three-year-old. They come to grandma's house. By the way, I have a beef. Why is it grandma's house? <laughs> I live there too. I help pay for it. I know, not relevant. Just thought I'd mention it. They come to grandma's house. Now, listen, Chris, at this stage in our lives, would have no interest in opening a home daycare, but she has a home daycare one day a week for two of our granddaughters because you tend to try to do stuff for family. But Peter was not talking about biological family. Peter was writing about spiritual family. He's writing about people thrown into each other's lives, and he says, now you need to treat people like family. Just say two words with me, like family. Ready? Like family. 
last year, uh, Ada Bible Church, we had the privilege of hosting 33 funerals. It's a bunch. And some of them were uh, pretty small and uncomplicated, and some of them were large and more complicated. Uh, often there is the service, and then we use our uh, atrium areas often to serve a lunch afterwards for the family. Um, we don't charge for funerals, not for the use of our building and not for, uh, not for the use of our campuses and not for the use not, not for the meal that comes afterwards. We, we, don't, we never, never charge for funerals. And the reason we don't charge for funerals is because when someone is attempting to bury their dad or their sister or their daughter, the last thing we want them thinking about is how much the ham sandwiches cost. Just all expenses are moved off the table. So 33 of those last year. Now, this is a common experience, and I just want to give my heartfelt thanks for those of you who serve in hospitality for those events and help to make those happen. A common experience is for a relative who lives outside of town, a sister that flies in, a brother that travels in, a parent that comes in, a child that comes in for the funeral, and sees the way we love on their relative, and often, it's not always expressed this way, but this is often the sense, thank you for treating my mom like family. <laughs> thank you for treating our sister and brother like your family. Thank you for doing what we would have done if we were here. And Grand Rapids was our home. It's brotherly love. I, I, I think, what would Jesus say about that? I think Jesus would say, that's, that's normal. That's, there's something about that, that someone experiencing brotherly love, people extending themselves and making people like family, something inside of us just go, that's the way it's supposed to be. What if it were like that everywhere? This is why a functioning Jesus community growing in its relationships, oneness, sympathy, brotherly love was supposed to be an island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness. An island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness. You're supposed to taste something. You're supposed to smell the aroma of something. You're supposed to go, this is the way it's supposed to be all the time, everywhere. And you get a glimpse at Jesus at work, not only in people, but between people. This brotherly love thing takes us to trait number four, and pursuit number four has to do with compassion. The word compassion. Now, Jesus, um, it's amazing how many times in the writings of Jesus in our New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have an expression, ah, oh, Jesus had compassion. Or Jesus speaks about somebody who says they had uh, compassion. So this word enters a ton of times into the life and teaching of Jesus. Three quick incidents are uh, the leper, the Samaritan, and the prodigal. It's a guy with a serious skin infection, leprosy. He comes up to Jesus, toward Jesus, but not to Jesus because you had to keep your distance. And he said, if you want to, you can heal me. And it says Jesus, filled with compassion, went up to the guy, put his hand on him. He is not repulsed by the man's condition. He moves toward the man's condition, the man with leprosy. A good Samaritan story. Guy gets beaten within an inch of his life, dumped by the side of the road. As Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 10, one guy travels by, sees, ooh, don't want to get near that. Guy number two, and then the Samaritan, which is an other ethnic group, 
a different ethnic group. He sees the guy, and it says he had compassion on him, went toward the guy, put that guy on his donkey, used some olive oil uh, to put in his wounds medicinally, wrapped up his wounds, takes him to an inn, and then pays the innkeeper to take care of him for a couple days. Jesus said because he had compassion on him. A uh, third incident I want to point to is the story of the prodigal son. Uh, kid comes to his dad and says, I want my cut of the inheritance. Takes off with a major chunk of the family's net worth. Blows it on some pretty wild living. Ends up in rags. He's starving to death. He says, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to apologize to my dad. My dad's servants are living better than I'm living. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to apologize. And it says, while the father saw him a long way off, he had compassion on him. And the dad runs out to embrace this smelly, ragged kid and to throw a welcome home party. Compassion, compassion, compassion. Those three incidents all have something in common. Movement. Jesus moved toward the man with leprosy and put his hand on him. The good Samaritan moved toward the guy that had been beaten within an inch of his life and tossed in a ditch. The prodigal's dad races out to embrace his son. Movement, movement, movement. This is a very important part of the conversation on compassion because we think compassion is just what we feel about a situation. But in each of this event, someone is moving toward the chaos. Now, a, a reminder... A reminder, I need to say this at least a couple times a year. A reminder. In any church of size, and by that I mean over 100, there's a point where it becomes unrealistic for everybody to look out for everybody. There's just a point where we don't have the relational and emotional bandwidth for everybody to look out for everybody. But... It is high real, highly realistic that at every moment, somebody's looking out for somebody. Highly unrealistic that everybody looks out for everybody. Highly realistic that everybody's looking out for somebody. In this compassion thing, here's my question. Who are you looking out for right now? Who could God be calling you to move toward right now? And I would love for someone to enter your mind. And just kind of go... I need to be looking out for them right now. It might be a medical situation, long-term medical situation. It might be someone who's experienced a recent failure and they're just embarrassed. They might need someone to help them figure out how to get back home. It's moving toward someone. Who are you looking out for right now? Someone who's been through a series of disappointments and is just depressing out. Someone that looks like they're doing great, but they're new in West Michigan, and they don't have relationships, and just including them to reduce the sense of aloneness. I, I just want you to imagine with me, imagine the community of Ada Bible Church where the majority of the people are looking out for somebody. I'm telling you, it's, it would be, it would be an island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness, an island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness. Uh, oneness, then sympathy, then brotherly love and compassion. I think those first four only work if you've got number five. Those first four only really click in 
if you've got number five. Number five is humility. Because there's just something about humility that says, I'm not always thinking about me. This oneness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion are all outward focus. I'm thinking about somebody else's health. I'm thinking about somebody else's need. I'm thinking about somebody else's prog progress. I'm thinking about somebody else's joy. I'm thinking about somebody else's pain. It's outward focus. It takes humility to not be thinking about me. I think humility is required for the other four to really click in. Now, I'm telling you, almost every time that you see a relational situation that's really bad and it starts to get healthy, peel back the layers and I believe you will find humility at the core. It can be something messed up in your family. It can be something messed up at work. It can be something messed up in a church situation. Almost every time that something is unhealthy and gets healthy, I'm telling you, peel back the layers, you will find at the core that somebody got humble. Humble enough to apologize. Humble enough to receive an apology. Humble enough to believe that I might actually be part of the problem. Humble enough to check into a counselor. Humble enough to seek out a brother or sister and say, we're drowning here. We're drowning here and we don't know what to do. Humble enough to seek out a mature brother and sister and say, listen, I blew it, I blew it, I really blew it, and I don't know what to do next. I'm telling you. The humility, the humility to rely upon the daily grace that Jesus provides. To receive his love in a way that empowers us to love the radically flawed people around us. Humility, humility, humility. Oneness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion. Humility. Pursue these, you might find some relationships become whole. Pursue these, you might be a happier person. But my friends, there is a goal here that is way more significant than your personal happiness and my personal happiness. It's the way that this reflects on Jesus. It's about living a life that could actually cause someone to want to step further and ask some questions about why you're living with hope. Uh, Chris and I, we, uh, we got a letter a couple years ago. Was a was a handwritten letter. This handwritten letter was from a, one of our daughter's friends from way back. I mean, they were friends when they were in middle school together, and so our daughter is mid thirties right now, and they hung out in middle school. So we're talking 18, 20 years ago, and she wrote this handwritten letter on kind of legal pad notebook page in order to tell us what she experienced in our family. Because she would hang out with us, she'd come over to our house because she didn't live that far away. Sometimes she'd go places with our family. There was something we did not know. We didn't know that her home was a war zone. We didn't know the way she described her father was having such volatility that everyone lived in constant fear about making some kind of mistake or not cleaning something up or not doing something that would cause the next volcanic explosion. Everybody tiptoed on eggshells all the time in that household. 
what she witnessed in our household was we laughed with our kids. <laughs> they didn't seem to be living with constant fear of doing something wrong. She caught some kind of a, an aroma of a house of peace, which was radically different from what her experience, what she experienced was an island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness. Now here's the crazy thing, we're looking at this letter two years ago and we're thinking back 18 years ago, 18 years ago for Chris and I, it was not a happy season. As we look back on when this young lady was in our home, it was one of those seasons when we had to seek out a counselor because we were talking past each other and things weren't going well. What I'm saying here is she wasn't mag magnetically drawn to her home because we were a perfect family because we weren't. We were not a perfect family with a perfect marriage with perfect kids, but at least we were in pursuit of leaning in to what oneness was supposed to look like and what joy was supposed to look like. And even though we were radically flawed, was a island of wholeness in a sea of brokenness and we did not know what she was experiencing in her home. Let's go back to the five words that we looked at. Oneness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, humility. Uh, could one of those become your word for this next season? Which one of those just laser in, dial in on one, and just say, so help me, God. Transform me into a person of greater sympathy, greater humility. Please bring about a oneness we've never seen. This like family thing, I know how to love my biological family sometimes. <laughs> I don't know that I treat other believers like family. Which one's yours? These five traits, I believe these have the capacity over time, over time and with setbacks, but over time to renew a family, restore work relationships, and revitalize a church. I really do. I believe that a pursuit of these five could make you more joyful and more happy. But happiness is not our highest goal. In context, these five traits begin to paint a picture of the way it was supposed to be in the beginning. Before sin entered the planet and before we had to deal with brokenness, that Jesus in our lives seeks to restore and part of that restoration is restoring broken relationships. I'm just telling you, start working on one of these and it might be only a matter of time before someone asks a question, what's up with you? I don't know, someone might ask, where do you go to church? or some other question where in some way they're beginning a spiritual conversation. Peter's counsel was this, back in uh, chapter three, verse 15, always be prepared to give an answer and then be prepared to give a short answer with gentleness and respect. And some of you look at that part and you go, preacher, I don't have a clue. Seriously, if someone at work asked me a faith question, I would not have a clue what to say. If a brother-in-law you know, asked me about my faith, I have no idea what I would say. I'm going to ask you for something. I'm going to ask you for 90 minutes. <laughs> Not now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
there's an event coming up in a few weeks. It's a Saturday morning, January 28th. It's an event on sharing your faith. 90 minutes where it's a 90-minute training on a tool, not a spiel. It doesn't teach you to give a spiel. It gives you a tool that is transferable to any number of conversations and interactions. 90 minutes. I would just plead with you if you go, dude, I don't have a clue what I would say if someone started asking faith questions. I have no clue how to have a spiritual conversation with someone who's on the outside looking in. I would plead with you just to circle that date, January 28th. Listen, this is worth 90 minutes of your time and focus to get sharper. What did Peter say? Always be ready to give an answer. If you go, I don't have a clue, this might be something that helps you get ready to give an answer in a variety of conversations. But it doesn't begin, this conversation doesn't begin with what we say. This conversation begins, this conversation begins, this conversation begins with our life. Living a life that would actually cause someone to ask a question. The conversation begins with living and pursuing the questionable life. Let me ask you to stand here and at our other campuses as well. I just want to say thank you, thank you for being here for part one of this critical five-part series. Gracious God, we give thanks and we ask we ask that you would move in our lives as we move into our week. Whisper to us, speak to us, mold us, craft us, give us patience with each other. Open our eyes to the people in need around us. Use our lives in power this very week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll see you next weekend.